Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. Thank you very much for the intro, Natalie Dillon, to today's guests, Jessica Rolf and Rod Morris, the co-founders of Lovevery, stage-based play essentials designed by experts built for babies and toddlers up to age three. Previously, Jessica co-founded and served as COO of Happy Family, an extremely successful organic baby food company. Rod previously was the senior vice president at O-Power. Going into this episode, I'll be honest, I didn't know much about toys and learning behavior for babies. So I learned a ton and Jessica and Rod made it so easy to digest how they're thinking differently about child development with Love Every. So without further ado, here they are. Jessica and Rod, thank you so much for joining me today on the Consumer VC. How are you both? Doing well. Doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's start at the beginning. Jessica, you created an extremely successful organic baby food company with Happy Family. How did you come up with the concept of Love Every? Yes. So at Happy Family, we had gone so deep in infant nutrition. So I, when I had my first baby, I felt so confident about what I was feeding him. It was like, one of his first words was sardines and he was eating, you know, spinach mixes. And I've just felt so good about his developing body. And I remember having an experience with him when I was working a lot and juggling a ton and trying to really craving a moment of being present with my little guy. And so I got down on the floor with him and watched him pull himself up to one of those like plastic toys where there's so much stuff happening. And I, he pushed one button and all of a sudden lights are flashing and a music starts playing and a purple cow pops out. And I found myself wondering what is going on with his developing brain? I know what's happening with his body, but what's happening with his brain? And so it set me on this quest to learn about early childhood development. And I discovered a doctoral thesis written by um, Dr. William Stasso, and he had gone really deep in the child development science, but then linked it and made it very relevant for parents with all these activity, he had all these activity ideas and ways to play. And I started just immersing myself in this new information and really just discovering this connection that I could that I could have with my child when I knew what he was hungry to learn at each stage. So I started making my own toys and dreaming about what it would it be like to create a stage-based learning program that is now Love Every. Wow, that's amazing. So it so your I guess it was your curiosity when you had your child that also kind of sparked Love Every and and how your child was developing, is that right? Yeah, I think that there's so much that's happening in those early years and it's it's really hard to know what to do, but once I kind of discovered this path, I really found that I felt really confident and excited to be, you know, there with my baby and his learning. Talk to me about the early company formations and when did you bring in Rod as a co-founder and and and, and how did that partnership come about? Yeah, well, I will say that Love Every was just a dream and an idea until Rod said that he would 
be up for being my co-founder in this business. So we were actually talking about trying to move our families closer together. So Rod's wife is my best friend from growing up and we were on the phone and Rod has always been a mentor to me in business and in a lot of things in, in life. And so I found myself asking him, I was like, I know I've got this business idea. I've been thinking about it. You know, it really was, um, you know, just an idea. And I shared it with him because I've always appreciated his feedback. And Rod really tuned in and he really got the vision for what I was thinking about creating and really built upon it and said, you know, I think there is something here. And I remember he sent an email to me following up, hey, what if we partnered together? Um, let's like, you know, split the company 50-50 and um, we'll, we'll co-found the company and, and I'll... Um, we can, we can create Love Every together. So that was really, I think, the beginning of, of you know, imagining Love Every. That's amazing how, how you two came together. This is my first time interviewing uh, two co-founders instead of you know, one co-founder CEO. And you know, for folks that are looking to co-found a company with someone else or you know, already had co-founded a company, you know, talk to me a little bit about the dynamic between you both and you know, what's the decision-making and delegation process in your business activities? Sure. I, I think before you even get into any kind of delegation of responsibilities, it's it's always important to understand that with co-founders, you're, you're kind of involved in everything together uh, from the beginning. Uh, you, you've both got something to contribute. And I think the thing that's important for both that part and for the delegation part is that there's a high degree of trust. Uh, so if anybody's thinking about who to found a company with, it's really important that you trust each other. And I think a big part of that is being totally aligned and sharing the same vision for what you want to create, how you want to be of service to people with what you're creating. And Jessica and I have that because uh, you know we both really care about helping parents and, and care about early childhood. We also have it because we've known each other for a long time. Uh, from a purely delegation of responsibility standpoint, uh, Jessica spends a lot of her time deep in product and in creating original content and thinking about customer experience and operations. Uh, I spend a lot of my time focused on revenue growth, marketing, digital products, and the financials behind the business. Uh, but again, we're, we're both together on a lot of all of those topics all the time. Yeah, so I think oftentimes with co-founders, I think that you like like to, you know, people like to kind of put us in a box. So they like to think of Rod as a certain type of person, like a very savvy, super smart, you know, team like scaling, uh, team builders, you know, company scaling kind of, um, operating financially super savvy person, business person. And they like, and they like to sort of put me in a, a, like more of a, oh, creative product person, you know, sort of ideas person and not as operational. And rather it's so interesting because, you know, I actually, my background at Happy Film was very operational and that Rod is actually incredibly visionary and creative and he's an incredible writer. And so it's interesting to think about kind of how these two skills, you know, I think that we've really crossed over a lot in terms of, you know, Rod writing headlines for our emails um, and, you know, Rod offering insights on patterns and um, visuals that we're, that we're doing for like our prints on our products. Um, me providing, providing insight, insight on, you know, kind of like customer dynamics, or we look through a financial model together. We both have insights into kind of the trajectory of the company. So, you know, I, I just want to kind of say that we're, 
you know, we're really, a, it's like a really deep, true partnership in the sense that we're bringing both bringing our full selves to the equation. And there's so much that we do together. I think that's a really good point. Because, you know, I think the kind of cliche in some ways say about if you should bring on a co founder is, if they have complementary skills. But I think that that what you're saying, which I think is really important is at the same time, don't be thrown, throw yourself just into a into a bucket and be and be, you know, not siloed, but, you know, only responsible for these couple things, if that makes sense. But um, rather, you know, it, rather, it should still be, you know, extremely collaborative, which it seems like both of you are. Yeah. And as Rod said, there's just a ton of trust. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the early days. Like, how did you how did you think about, you know, design and the quality and, you know, building your first product, um, which was, I believe, the baby gym. Is that right? Yes. So I think in a lot of ways, the parenting market has been underserved. So underserved from a visual perspective, like the toys are just, you know, it's like it, somebody said in a, in a forum, it was like Elmo, like had a party in my living room and just left it, you know, or threw up in my living room. It's like, there's just so much clutter and stuff related to that kind of for early parenting. And it's really, you know, kind of shocking <laughs> to go to make that transition. So why is that? Why can't we have beautiful things when we're, you know, kind of thinking about um, the stuff that we need for our children and, and be inspired by that. And then I think the other question is just, you know, with, with us and our business model. So Rod and I decided to launch first with a play gym. So we looked at this category, had a really had an insight that there's this really important product that, um, really needs a redo, a reinvention based on what a baby is trying to learn at each stage instead of sort of what, what adults think of as uh, like a, a great toy. So for example, there's like that you can pick the sea theme or the um, jungle theme if you're buying a play gym before we launched ours. And what we were looking at is how can we bring Montessori and intentional parenting to this product category that really has a ton of ton of products, but they all kind of seemed the same to us. So we started out by launching the Play Gym, um, which then gave us a platform to build our stage-based learning program and launch that less than a year later. I know, I know that you, you obviously come from um, an extensive, you know, consumer products background, but how did you, how did you also approach the uh, supply chain at the beginning? That was really hard. I would say that that was one of our hardest early hurdles was figuring out how to make our product with integrity. So 90% of the toys are made in, um, in China. And so we really, we want, we felt like we wanted to go understand what that was about. We looked at us manufacturing. We looked at China manufacturing. Um, we looked at some other countries and we went on a trip, um, and saw a lot of different facilities. We finally found, and I think that this was one of the biggest kind of strokes of luck that we had early on, a company called Hape, which is uh, led by an incredibly high integrity founder and this, with this high integrity team that's really focused on sustainability. It's the number one producer of sustainably harvested wood toys in the world. And um, and so we found them and they were able to deal with our entrepreneurial dreams and our complexity, knew the safety regulations and understood, you know, kind of the ins and outs of making um, high quality products for, for children um, because they have, they have a very kind of well-respected brand. And so we feel like that was one of our big early wins. It felt like a very hard thing to do is figure out where we were going to make this product at cost uh, to, to be able to make it work from a financial perspective, you know, from a market product market fit perspective. 
and then also um, have something that aligns with our values. So we are really grateful for our partnership. Yeah, I think one other thing I'd, I'd add to that is um, it's not always obvious to people from the outside, but everything we were doing was to advance toward this goal of building a stage-based learning program using subscription. We just knew that we couldn't get all of those products out immediately. And even if we could, it would be highly risky because we didn't know how people were going to respond to the brand. We didn't know how they were going to respond to the content that we were including. Every, every little thought that we, we were putting into our products, we, we hoped, uh, we expected that it would do well, but we didn't know. And so when we picked our manufacturing partner, we needed somebody who was going to be working in parallel with us on lots of other SKUs that we were going to be rolling out very quickly if we were successful with the Play Gem uh, so that we could start rolling out subscription. And uh, Peter and Hoppe uh, were, were fantastic for that because they had the kind of breadth and capabilities uh, and also, like Jessica said, enthusiasm for what we wanted to do. Uh, they were a great partner for not only getting the Play Gem out, but also being with us for the long term. I, I do talk to founders at the early stages and I, I say that, you know, if, if you can, if you're able to visit the actual manufacturing um, facilities, it can make such a difference in really establishing those those relationships. So it's really just interesting to hear uh, kind of your process when you were going through and, and, and thinking about how to manufacture uh, your products. So once you built the baby gym, what was your go-to market strategy in, in, in terms of just how to how to get off the ground? So I guess there there are a couple of elements there. One, like where where are you selling it? And two, how are you getting people aware of it? Um, in terms of where we were selling it, I, I, I think again, like the thing that's that's really important to stress here is the end game for us wasn't selling a lot of play gems. Uh, but but we saw using the play gem as a way to make everybody aware of our brand to prove our product market fit is incredibly important. So we wanted people to discover it uh, as quickly as possible. And for that reason, with the play gem, uh, we were not only selling it direct to consumer on our site, but we also formed an arrangement with, with Amazon uh, on vendor central where uh, we were, we were shipping units to them every week. And the idea was that uh, more than half of searches were originating on Amazon. Uh, we were starting out as an unknown brand. We wanted to be found there as well. Uh, and then in terms of how we got people aware of it, uh, of course, we did the paid acquisition that you would expect on the platforms that you would expect. Uh, and we started working on, on our organic social presence early as well. Um, but I think what was, was really essential was uh, our PR efforts. And uh, I think, I don't know if Jessica wants to share here as well, but we, we did a lot of scrappy things to get in front of writers and to get product influencers early on. Uh, and then we used uh, obviously paid channels to kind of take those examples and, and share them with the world. And, and we found pretty quickly uh, that we had a recipe that was working for, for growing our business first with the Play Gym, uh, and, and helped convince people that uh, they should give us a, a shot in terms of 
other products down the road. I don't know, Jessica, what would you add to that? Yeah, I guess I would just say that the to, to be nuanced about it, we really crave having a relationship. Our mission is to have a relationship with parents, an ongoing relationship as their babies develop and grow. And we want to help them feel confident about that journey. And we want to help them with information as much as we want to help them with physical products. So the so selling a baby play gym on Amazon was a piece of our model because we offer a play guide and it was really loved. Like the content and information that came with the product was, was really, I think we felt deeply of service as long as well as the product itself was this sort of category, you know, redo, but from like a long-term developing a long-term relationship with the customer, the play gym wasn't it. So again, it was, it was a way for us to be relevant in a category that was already, you know, shopped, launch a brand become, make a name for ourselves, but then also then pivot to our real mission and purpose, which is our stage-based learning program. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, how, so if like the, if the primary objective was not to, I mean, obviously sell baby gyms, but it was really more of like a launch pad for the brand and brand building. How did you know if the brand building was actually working? Yeah, we had so much, I will say it was just, it was in the customer love that we got from the product within uh, a, less than a year, we were number one in revenue on Amazon in the category. And this is a category that a lot of like early investors, you know, some of them were looking at, you know, this is a really crowded category. How are you going to break out here? Um, and then for us, it was just like, you know, Rod, I've never experienced anything. And I think you said the same with the, you know, the companies that you've helped to build. I've never experienced such deep customer love than we did, whether it was emails that people would write us um, through customer service and just take the time to tell us how much their baby loved this product, how much they felt more empowered around their child's development with this simple guidebook and activities. It just really felt like this was like a kernel of our model. And it was, um, and we had, we had really touched a deep kind of place in, in serving a need for parents. Also celebrities were posting this play gym. So it was also fitting within the aesthetics of, I think, you know, it made people felt inspired and felt optimistic when they were using this product because it wasn't ugly and, um, and cluttering their living room. So I think it was like all the elements of the eventual model were like pieces of it were, we had evidence that the, the bigger model around a stage-based learning program would be successful if we had so much love and product market fit from the beginning. Yeah. I think, I think the only thing I'd add to that, Jessica, is a lot of the enthusiasm we got from customers and, and from reporters was, about the content that came with the play gyms. So, uh, you know, kind of, there's a, a pretty extensive play guide, a booklet with ideas for different ways to play with your child and, and information to know about them and, and about each stage of, of the first year of life that uh, we put a lot of work into, a lot of heart and soul into. And uh, I think we got we got it all back from the customers with, uh, you know, their social posts about things that they were reading in the play guide or doing because they found out about it in the play guide. And so when we saw that the response wasn't just for our product, but also for the information that we were giving them and, and the way in which we were doing it, we just felt like, okay, uh, there, there are enough elements here in the brands that we've put out there that folks are responding to. We think we've got a platform here that's going to support 
our bigger vision. What I love about both of your responses, it really, I think it really shows a lot about what brand building is and how, how you know if you've nailed it and you actually have, you know, all this customer feedback and, you know, the amount of time that you put into developing the booklet. Wanted to also touch on growth, just how you thought about organic versus paid. I think it's important to just uh, acknowledge that they work well together, uh, that uh, it's, there, there are examples of, of brands who've been able to go completely organic and just get tremendous mileage without any paid. But, but more typically, what you see is uh, a great blended CAC that, that comes out of efficient use of paid channels that are then creating a flywheel of customers who are talking about you, who are sharing your, your, your blog posts or sharing your social posts. Um, and, and it kind of builds on itself. Uh, I mean, what we think about uh, when we're acquiring customers is how do we increase the organic? And we have a number of different things we're doing along those lines. And then how do we diversify and lower our paid? And, and that's really a matter of trying new channels and then making sure that the channels that we're in are experiencing just constant creativity from our team. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that we've, I think that we've touched on, if, if you'd like to say any more, any, any more thoughts about this, but uh, some of the ways you're able to establish, you know, community, both your, your brand and products. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just nothing more relatable than really being a part of a parent community of, you know, people who are going through the same stage of life that you are with your child. And so I think that it's a really natural place for us to be. We feel like for us defining community is really being in communication and taking feedback from our customers, implementing that feedback, and then asking again, is this, is this right? Are we meeting your needs? And I think it's like a real deep kind of service mentality that we have around how can we help parents through every stage. And then we're also not kind of like communicating from up high. We're communicating as a peer who's doing a lot of, who is doing a lot of research and who has a lot of resources to help. And we're trying to sort of be that trusted friend who's done all the work, done all the research, you know, and then have, let's have a conversation about what that means for you and your baby or you and your child. And so I think that we're seeing that on social where we'll post something on social around toddler fears and how, you know, just like really, um, being respectful of your toddler's fears, fears is important. This is just like a post from the other day and, and just seeing all the, all the comments and all of the, the, the community is supporting each other now, you know, it's, it's so I think it's, it's a very, um, it's a very rich environment to, to really have meaningful, com- like, a, like a meaningful community built. And I feel like we're just getting started in this part of our business. Just seeing the reaction from, from customers and, and, and from, from folks and that are, you know, going through this, that are, you know, are, are newly parents or, or, or have a very, very young child and seeing that community being built. As you both know, this is a venture capital podcast. So I do want to talk as well about um, the fundraise. And uh, I wanted to first ask, um, why why were you thinking and why did you choose to raise money in, in, instead of bootstrapping? Yeah, so um, I would say that, you know, we, I think like every entrepreneur, you know, like all entrepreneurs, I think Rod and I really felt like we were onto something really big and we felt like we could see this white space and this need from parents and around um, a desire to lean into early childhood development in a meaningful way. And we just could see our, our vision. And so we, we 
wanted to make sure that we had enough capital to get enough critical mass so that we could really, um, you know, kind of like delight in owning that space and define the space and really um, become kind of what the full expression of what Love Every is to be in the world, which, you know, we want to be a support system for parents and we want to do it eventually globally. And like, there's so much, so many dreams that we have and we bootstrapping it would, it usually takes longer. And so getting market share and getting um, that critical, getting to that critical mass, you do open yourself up to competitors. And we just, we really wanted to try and um, own the market as quickly as we can. So that's been our objective and our capital raise. That, that makes a lot of sense in terms of the reason wanting to be um, a category leader uh, and so I wanted to, wanted to also talk as well. What was your, what was your fundraising strategy initially? So our fundraising strategy generally has been all about relationships. Uh, and I think it was that, that has taken a you know different shape with each, uh, each success, successive, uh, fundraise that we've done. Uh, the first, the first raise was, you know, to find a, a convertible note. And it was almost entirely through our, our personal networks. Uh, so Jessica and I basically built a pipeline of all the people we knew who we thought uh, would be interested either because they were active angels or uh, had invested uh, with, with Jessica's, you know, venture before with Happy Family uh, or, or because we, we knew they would be passionate about the idea. And um, in some ways, as we've gone to bigger raises um, and gotten a little bit more institutional in our capital structure, uh, it really hasn't changed that much because uh, we still think of these as relationships that we're building. And we're still looking for uh, folks who are aligned with our values, folks who are passionate about what we're passionate about, who just like who get it. and. Um, and so in some ways it hasn't changed that much, but we were very, very angel oriented early on. And, uh, you know, we didn't really have uh, any institutionals um, for the most part, uh, maybe one or two in, in the seed round. And then our series A was still majority angels and Jessica and I actually priced that round ourselves. Uh, and then the B was led by Maveron, uh, had Google Ventures, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Collaborative Fund, others and uh, reach capital uh, and uh, and that was that was predominantly institutional but um, but again uh, the, the people who are participating in that uh, it was all relationships that we've been building over time and and which we thought were well aligned with what we were trying to do what were some of your biggest hurdles um, when fundraising I mean I would say that uh, if, if somebody kind of could transcend thinking about us as a toy company. I think we, we had a shot at having, you know, being able to have a great kind of conversation. I think that, you know, I think being able to transcend like the niche, the reputation of just like, okay, this is like kind of a niche space. Um, you're working in a sort of like an older industry, the multiples aren't good. Um, you're really making like some great toys. I think if, if people saw us as that, um, it, it didn't go very far. So I think that was one of our biggest hurdles. What are some, some maybe advice that you might have for founders that are located in secondary and tertiary markets that are looking to raise from institutional investors? Was that ever an issue since you're both located in, in Idaho? So it was not an issue for us. And I think part of that is because Jessica and I are, are experienced entrepreneurs and we have 
we have a pretty strong network already, which, you know, I think we're, we're privileged to have that. And it's something that's not necessarily fair about this world, but, uh, we didn't have we didn't have that issue. I think another reason why it wasn't an issue for us is we were always happy to get on a plane and make it a non-issue. So we were showing up uh, multiple times a month in the cities we needed to be in uh, to make it as frictionless as possible to have the conversations we needed to have. And it's it's tough advice to give uh, during this time when folks are social distancing and not traveling as much, but in whatever way you can, you want to show up, you want to be as frictionless as possible uh, for whoever it is that you're pitching so that they don't see any kind of a cost related to wherever you may be. What's one thing that you would change when it came to fundraising? So one of the things that I think was really, that Rod and I remarked on in our fundraising process was how much our network and how much our privilege in having that network really impacted our success. So what we heard when we first started kind of figuring out the rules of raising institutional capital, because like, frankly, neither one of us had actually directly raised institutional capital. With Happy Family, I'd raised all um, from all most, you know, really primarily individuals. And with Rod, he supported the co-founders in, they were primary in raising that institutional capital for his last company. And so you know, I think for us, like we were told that we just, you know, we really needed an intro, a warm intro that they won't really look at you and they won't, you know, that a a VC firm won't really look at you unless they get an email intro from either another founder or somebody that they know. And um, I don't, we don't know how true this truly is. And if uh, VCs are actually looking at the open field, you know, email at, you know, vcfund.com, if they're really reading those emails and those kind of cold, the bids for for a review, but we felt like the 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 insider game was was to get these intros, and so it just it really I think for us um, was surprising that it was that that you know kind of like it just felt like a perpetuation of sort of our privilege. We were able to get over that. We we have a you know we ended up digging deep into our networks. We created a spreadsheet and we had a process to ask people, do you know anybody at this fund? Okay, is this intro going to be better coming from this person or that person? And it really opened a lot of doors for us. And we were able to get that first meeting. Um, but I would say if we were hoping that something could change about the industry, it would be that there would be more of a space for that cold, <laughs> the cold call. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's it's a conversation I've cert- I've uh, I've had quite a few times with uh, venture capitalists on uh, on the show. Uh, one was very proud to uh, to say that twenty percent of his portfolio was all just cold. Uh, were all was all initiated by the founder just cold reaching out another another one said that 60 percent of his were um were also just just a founder reaching out cold so but then others of course just only or or, or more so value a lot more um uh, the warm intro which i mean i'm sure a lot of investors value the the warm intro maybe a little bit more than than cold but um it's always interesting hearing just different perspectives and i i, I completely agree with you so Let's let's talk about product and pricing strategy. I know you have uh, the subscription business, which as I know, as you talked to before, you launched uh, uh, the gym. Uh, but really, the intention was to um, was uh, the, the subscription business for, for for play kits. And but you also as well have these individual uh, products like the play gym. Uh, when you're thinking about building a new product, how do you think about whether it should be part of a subscription versus separate? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's really 
price point driven. So if we can fit it into, I think a couple of things, one is if we can fit it into the box and it works from a pricing perspective and it's like the right, um, product mix related to the child's developmental milestones, then, then it, then we really love to prioritize, um, our play kits. I think in other instances, there's something really great, like a, let's say there's something that really is like a, like a little dust broom and but it's just like the perfect broom and dustpan for a child and it's ergonomic for them, but people might already have a mini size dustpan and broom for their toddler. And so we would then decide to stand, sell that kind of product standalone. So if people already have this high household penetration of a category already and people already have a type of product that we don't want to put it in the play kit because we don't want people to review the kits and think, oh, I already have that. I don't need it. Um, so that's sort of some of the filter. The other is, is if it's just a bigger item, like a play gym is really expensive, so it doesn't fit in a play kit. Um, we have a block set and it's, it's a, it's a, you know, bigger ticket item. It doesn't fit in a play kit. Without revealing all your secrets, are you going to stay in the zero to three age or is the plan eventually to introduce products as well for the child's development in the later stages? Yeah. I mean, I think that we are really focused right now on going very deep in the early childhood space. And so that means like being of, you know, such service to be parents of babies, parents of one-year-olds, parents of, you know, soon to be two-year-olds. And I think that when, if we can really obsess over getting that right, we'll then consider expansion. But right now we're really focused on serving the families um, that we do have. Wanted to also, I know it's top top of mind for everybody, uh, COVID, uh, wanted to know how COVID might have changed your operating plans and did you have to pivot any part of your business as a result? So uh, I think uh, like lots of businesses, uh, in terms of our, our team, uh, Everybody's working from home and, and spending a lot of time on on Zoom. Uh, in terms of the business, we've been fortunate that our supply chain has been stable, and actually, we've had opportunity to move up purchase orders because others uh, haven't had the same demand that we've had. Uh, what's been the really surprising in a positive way thing for us uh, is that, uh, like some other consumer businesses out there who are direct to consumer. Uh, we've experienced uh, the benefits of less ad, less ad inventory being being competed for uh, by others and, and just lower lower paid CACs uh, and then more people at home spending time thinking about uh, you know what to do with their children um, and and you know paying attention to our ads uh, and and also paying attention to articles about us, our content, and everything else. Um, and we we did put out a lot of great new blog content focused on, on what parents can do at home during this time. The, the net result is uh, we're seeing our numbers way up. So um, we're, we're looking at uh, revised projections that are more than 40% over what we had originally budgeted at the beginning of the year. And uh, we're going to have more than twice as much cash uh, as we expected to have in the bank at the end of the year. So it's, it's great from a revenue perspective. It's great from a you know, kind of uh, financial sustainability perspective as well. Uh, and it, it just it's exciting to see this growth compared to what we, we thought was a fantastic growth year last year. Um, so from a business perspective, uh, it's it's been good for us and we're obviously very grateful because we know it hasn't been for everybody. Totally, totally. Well, I mean, that's, first of all, that's amazing. And congratulations. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's awesome. In terms of the, um, what, what has been the adjustment like to work from home uh, for for both you two and as well for for other employees? 
Well, yeah, I mean, being a child development company and really asking, you know, families to invest in their children, it was really hard for us to say, work from home and also be a parent. And so Rod and I, you know, talked about this, thought about it pretty deeply and said that, I mean, we came up with the two things that I think have really helped not solved all of the problems that parents are struggling with, that we're struggling with personally as, as parents juggling everything at home. But one is, is that, uh, we pay for childcare. So if for one-to-one childcare, so if somebody feels comfortable having a caregiver come to their home, and if that other caregivers, you know, also in quarantine, we set up, um, some arrangements with some nanny service placements. We, um, worked our personal networks. We really tried to help our employees get the coverage that they needed, especially if they had young children. Now, some employees took advantage of that, others didn't, but it was something that we said that we would pay for and really support because we this this whole notion of like, quote unquote, working from home, plus taking care of your kids, like they're two totally different roles and it's really hard to do both. The second thing we did for, for children who are more of grade school age and a little bit older, you know, they're there and we are really trying to, you know, one of our company values is to minimize screen time and just have children, have children be able to experience the physical world. And so we created this $30 a day stipend, um, for families to be able to buy Legos, buy science kits, buy arts and crafts materials, buy new books for their children to keep them, to have them occupied in things that are developmental and healthy for them while their parents work. So this all, you know, kind of in theory, I think it really helped. I think in practice, it did help. Does it completely solve this like conundrum that we're in? No. Great that you had like a, a stipend for folks. Wanted to also talk as well in terms of, of how you think about hiring. You know, I've I've talked to a few VCs and the reason why they might be wary of investing in companies that are in secondary or tertiary markets is because of access to talent. Wanted to know if you've run into that issue. Boise actually has been a great place uh, for hiring. Uh, we, going into this, we, we, we knew that it wasn't a slam dunk, that, that this was going to work from a talent perspective, just for, you know, kind of the same reasons that everybody else gives you like, oh, you can get more more software engineers or more more growth marketers if you go to this city or that city. But in fact, Boise is a really attractive place to live. And we've got folks who are moving here from California, from Seattle, from the East Coast, uh, from, from name companies because they see what we're doing and they think what we're doing is attractive, but they also think Boise is an attractive place to live. Um, we also have some remote workers uh, I think we have remote employees in most of the time zones of the U.S. at this point. Uh, so we never want to sacrifice uh, the quality of our, our team if there's something amazing that we we can get and the role can be done remotely. We're, we're open to it. But we see tremendous value at building this this thriving team that's that's in place uh, in, in Boise and able to create together in the same physical space, which, uh, you know, is, is, is tough to match. Uh, so we think we're doing well with it. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't foresee us uh, moving locations. It, it just has not turned out to be a problem. And in fact, it seems to be getting easier as our, our company's reputation uh, becomes more known 
and as Boise comes more known as a place to to move if if you're looking for a change of pace. Boise was part of the attraction in terms of actually uh, for talent, right? Um, which is kind of interesting because you would have thought, um, at least some of the investors I talked to, you, you you would have thought it was the opposite. But that's that's amazing. I mean, you know, and and, and I can only imagine. I, I I've never been to Idaho, but um, I've heard incredible things. What's one book that inspired each of you personally, and one book that inspired each of you uh, professionally? Yeah, I would say the the personal book was this um, doctoral thesis that inspired Love Every, and it was really a personal inspiration. So it was a survey of all the research at the time done on early childhood development, and then it distilled it into this program of activities that I could do with my baby. So it was like, let's go on a house tour and find all the places where there's water or turn on and off all the lights in the house. It was like all these like really interesting ways to see the world through our ba- my baby's eyes. And so that was really kind of like my personal inspiration as a parent. And then professionally, I have, I have loved, um, I have loved high performance habits by Brendan Burchard. Uh, it's really, it's a really good book to try to elevate your kind of like how you show up, um, and your sort of habits and how that can be modified to be more, you know, more intentional and ultimately more successful. And I guess, let's see, for me, I would say, Professionally, uh, I, I think both of these are books that that I picked up in in school in different schools. So, in in professionally, there's a book that's that's influenced me since I, I was in in graduate school, uh, and that's uh, Influence: Science and Practice by Robert Cialdini. Uh, it's it's one of the better known behavioral science books, and uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, learn about that the the content of that book from. Dr. Cialdini. And then uh, later when I worked for Opower, uh, Dr. Cialdini was on the advisory board. And it's it's a book that really gives you a view into some of the core behavioral tactics that are used by, by marketers and other organizations and, and how they work by, by tapping into these innate parts of the ways our, our brains are triggered to do different things or want different things. Uh, and then uh, the book that personally has probably had the most impact on me um, is one I read in college when I was a philosophy major. And uh, it's, it's probably Plato's Allegory of the Cave, um, because it just really made me think on a different level about uh, how things are, uh, what, what things really are versus how they appear, and uh, led me to really just question my own opinions and and how I, I think about what I can can really count on as, as definitive and real versus not. Um, and I think it, it helped me have a more flexible mind and, and be more open to to the possibility of being wrong and, and trying to figure out if I'm wrong faster rather than more slowly. I read The Allegory of Cave when I was in high school. Now I want to like revisit it. I haven't read it since. So that, that'd be really, really cool. Um, and uh, I'm also excited because none of these books, um, pre- previous investors or, or founders have, uh, have mentioned. So uh, excited to add all four of them to the, to the book list on the website. My final, my final question for you both is what's one piece of advice that you might have for folks that are fundraising or starting a, or thinking about starting a B2C company? I think uh, I'd go back to what I shared about fundraising before, which is that it's a relationship business. And I'd, I'd, I'd home in on that and just say, uh, you don't know which relationships are gonna end up being the most fruitful for your business from a fundraising point of view. You don't know who's going to ultimately attach to your idea and wanna help fund it. 
so every relationship matters and uh, you need to treat them all with respect. And you also need to not count on some small number of relationships being what gets you where you need to go from a fundraising perspective. So you need to actively cultivate uh, a lot of relationships and just treat that as part of the job, but it, it can be a fun part of the job because you're, you're meeting great people and building relationships. Yeah. And I guess my advice would be to, um, twofold. One is, is ha have a great co-founder. I think that businesses are just so much more powerful when you have somebody that you can really be in there in the trenches with. And I'm just so grateful to Rod for, um, I love, I love work. I love working with Aww. you. Um, and I will <laughs> say second is, uh, is to really think about like, kind of like before you start a company, whether you consider yourself an emotional person or a person who has highs and lows or not, I think it, it's really when you put your, you know, dream out there and you have this vision and you're trying to make it a reality, but it's not real in the world yet, it can be really hard. And you can have one conversation with somebody that feels, that helps you, you know, kind of feel optimistic and excited about your idea. And then the next day you have you know, a conversation with someone else and it just, it, you all of a sudden are really deflated. And I think that really like being like kind of more deeply aware of that inner roller coaster that you're going through and putting it in its place, kind of setting it aside and saying, instead of riding that and being only productive when I'm feeling good and not being productive when I'm not feeling good, kind of put that aside and say, I am committed to going after this dream. And so I'm going to really just focus on putting one foot in front of the other. What's the next thing I can do? What's my roadmap? What are my action steps? And really staying in the kind of um, operational mode as opposed to the emotional mode, especially when it's vulnerable, especially when you're fundraising, especially when it's early. I, first of all, I, I love all those points. I think that's all, you know, I think to Jessica's point, I think it's really important to really know yourself and, and know your personality. Well, thank you both so much for coming onto the show. It was such a pleasure having you, Jessica and Rod. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And there you have it. It was such a blast talking to Jessica and Rod, learning how they started Love Every and how they've been able to grow this incredible business. You can follow Jessica at Rolf Jessica and Rod at Roderick Morris on Twitter. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit the ConsumerVC.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.